I'm Linda Holmes from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. What has pointy ears, a cape, a huge ego, and knees that don't bend? That's right, Lego Batman. To get the skinny on his new movie and lots of other good stuff to watch and read, find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. This podcast was recorded at 3 o'clock Eastern Time Thursday. Things may have changed by the time you hear it. Keep up with all of our political coverage on NPR.org, the NPR One app, and of course, on your local public radio station. Okay, here's the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here to talk about a couple of political news items this week. The confirmation of Attorney General Jeff Sessions and others, Neil Gorsuch criticizing President Trump, and questions about the recent SEAL raid in Yemen. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Hey, guys. Hey there, Scott. We're a little more intimate crowd tonight than tomorrow night for our podcast recording. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> we will get into that later. But before we get into today's show, if you're new to the show, hey, how's it going? Hello. Glad you could join us. Thanks for being here, guys. Yeah, we uh, <laughs> Just to run through this, we do a couple episodes each week here at the podcast. When there's a big news story, we try to get in the studio and tell you what it means. And then at the end of the week, we do a big weekly roundup on all the week's news. Uh, You'll always hear either myself or Tamara hosting the show, along with a rotating cast of reporters and editors, including Domenico Montanaro. Sometimes. Sometimes. That's true. And this episode, hopefully, will hold you over until Saturday, which is when you'll be able to hear the big show we're recording live in D.C. tomorrow night, which I'm excited about. Yeah. All right. So the, for the first thing we should say is that as we sit here and tape around three o'clock, we have not gotten the ruling yet from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on the president's travel ban and whether the halt issued on the ban last week can remain in place. A ruling is expected by the end of the week. So we'll be discussing that possibly in the next episode or whenever it happens. We will definitely discuss it yes. whenever it happens. But we don't know when it will happen. Part of the mystery of the federal judiciary. You know, it's an independent branch of government. We have heard a lot about that. The fascinating week. thing is that they've probably already decided and that they are just like putting the finishing touches, who writes what, who writes which decision, which parts of it, how they're going to roll it out. So, But it's fascinating. It's like the one part of government that doesn't leak. Yeah, that's always right? crazy to me. But I guess it's just because there's no incentive. Because if you're that clerk who leaks the high-profile ruling, that is the end of your legal career. <laughs> Don't be that guy. Don't and they're be. all very ambitious, the clerks are. All right. So a lot of news. Let's start today by talking about Trump's cabinet. This afternoon, Jeff Sessions was sworn in as attorney general. He was confirmed by the Senate last night on a close party line vote, close but not as close as the earlier vote for Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, where Vice President Mike Pence had to come in and break a 50-50 tie. Which has never been done before by a vice president on a cabinet nomination, but it was done. And it was the first time a vice president had broken any sort of tie in more than eight years because Joe Biden never did it. Asterisk on the vice president never having done it before. True. But the reason for that is because Democrats blew up the filibuster, the rule requiring 60 votes to proceed to the full Senate to vote. So before this, you needed 60 votes. So you weren't going to lose that many votes to get the vice president to have to weigh in. So this is the first time they've had to actually vote on cabinet nominees since then. But it's a rare thing nonetheless. It is. (laughs) 
You look very proud of yourself. Well, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just a point of context. That's true. We talked about both of those things separately. Yeah. And I did not mentally put them together. So uh, the Sessions vote was interesting. The DeVos vote was interesting. We talked about both of them uh, before. Tamara, what's the big picture look at how Trump's cabinet is stacking up right now in terms of how many people have been confirmed and how many people are still waiting? So if he were to hold a cabinet meeting... He would not need a very big table at this point. Uh, At this point, President Trump has six of the 15 core cabinet members. At this point, in other presidents' presidencies, George H.W. Bush had 10 of 14. uh, Bill Clinton had 13. George W. Bush had 14. And President Obama had 12. So Donald Trump is bringing up the rear in terms of the numbers. This is something Trump and his team have complained about. They say Democrats are slow walking. Democrats are slow walking, but they have cause, they say. Mm -hmm. And that's right. Democrats are using uh, as much floor time as allocated for each one of these votes. They're saying, let's let's take all those 30 hours of the debate. In fact, earlier this week, the Senate was in for like several days straight, which is pretty rare. Pajama uh, party. But um, (laughs) sounds great. Domenico, the fact (laughs) is, though, as much as Democrats slow this down uh, because of the 60 vote thing that you were saying, They can't really stop any of these nominations unless a lot of Republicans defect. I mean, Betsy DeVos got a lot of traction. And in the end, she's still education secretary. I was just going to say Betsy DeVos was sort of the low hanging fruit for Democrats. She Mm -hmm. seemed to be the only one who had some potential to go down because Republicans have 52 votes. Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska said they would vote against her. Uh, They were disappointed by her confirmation hearing. But still, that was 50. And Pence was able to come in to break that tie. So that's as close as it was going to get. Rex Tillerson got through uh, for Secretary of State. You've got uh, Jeff Sessions, Jim Mattis, who was a much wider margin. You know, it is fascinating because if you look back at the years, the vote on these cabinet picks has gotten much more polarized. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Bill Clinton, if you look back, the lowest number he got for any cabinet pick was 85 votes. Okay, But I have have a question about that, though, because uh, a lot of Democrats have been pressuring Democratic senators to vote no on these picks in a block. But I guess in the end, if they're appointed anyway, I guess who cares? Does anybody look at a cabinet secretary and say, well, you were a 90 to 10 pick compared to like you were 51, 49? I think process still matters and the kinds of picks still matter. I think because the filibuster being gone, what it has meant is that you have... Donald Trump pushing the envelope with the kinds of picks that he has. If the 60 vote threshold was still in place, you might have a lot more people with more traditional experience, whether it's government experience, yeah. uh, okay. you know, working within those agencies, things like that. You know, it's not just democratic obstruction. These people, because of their wealth and because of their lack of experience in government, it makes it more difficult. It takes longer for them to get all that paperwork in. There's just a lot more numbers to deal with. Just one example quickly, Andy Puzder, who is the uh, pick for labor secretary, he was announced long ago, uh, you know, it's February, and he only just finished his ethics vetting process this week. Last night, I acquired the documents uh, that he had filled out saying that he would divest from his very many uh, investments. Uh, But 
his paperwork, his ethics stuff, his vetting wasn't done until just now. Uh, now he has a hearing scheduled for next week. Democrats are hoping to take a big stand. Yeah, they've taken stands on DeVos. They've taken stands on Sessions. They've taken stands on, on Tom Price. Tom Price looks like he'll be confirmed just like the other two. I would just say that I think the Democrats here, what you're seeing actually, is that even if they don't have the votes, they want to take a stand on what they see as core principles and values. Yeah, and I think a great example of that uh, in terms of the message getting out is something that happened this week with the Jeff Sessions debate. Uh, It feels like every week there's a political rule or or law that's pretty obscure, and then it's suddenly thrown out front and center, and we all have an opinion on it, and your entire Facebook feed is people being experts on it. The emoluments clause was one example of that. This week it was Senate Rule 19, (laughs) which Domenico's going to explain in a second, but to catch you up, this started when Elizabeth Warren got on the Senate floor uh, to read a letter sent to the Senate by Coretta Scott King, Not this year, but back in 1986, when she tried to persuade the Senate not to confirm Sessions to a position as a federal judge. So Warren is reading this letter, which was pretty blunt in its criticism of Sessions, saying that he had basically uh, tried to take advantage of elderly black voters. Uh, and, And Warren is interrupted by Mitch McConnell. They are mothers, daughters, sisters, fathers, sons, and brothers. Mr. President. They are... Mr. President. The Majority Leader. The Senators impugn the motives and conduct of our colleague from Alabama as warned by the Chair. Senator Warren, quote, said Senator Sessions has used the awesome power of his office to chill the free exercise of the vote by black citizens. I call the Senator to order under the provisions of Rule 19. Rule 19. Domenico, fill us in on this. Okay, we can go to that first. All right, so Rule 19.2. We should Uh. point out rule 19.2 says no senator in debate shall directly or indirectly by any form of words impute. And that's right. Impute, not impugn, because a lot of people have been saying impugn, which, you know, you're looking at impugn to downplay what somebody else has said. Impugn would be more cut and dry. Impugn would be more cut and dry. Impute simply is just they did it right. Okay, so you should not impute to another senator or to other senators any conduct or motive unworthy or unbecoming a senator. Basically, you can't trash talk another senator on the floor. Yeah, that's the idea, right? That there's supposed to be civil discourse and that there's supposed to be civil behavior, actually, Mm -hmm. because there's a couple other points here uh, of when it's been used in the past. Um, You know, people have used the example of Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, outspoken, who went to the floor in 2015 and essentially called Mitch McConnell a liar. He said that he's not standing up for his word. He's lied over and over again. He was warned and stopped. Mm-hmm. Okay, But Elizabeth Warren, when she was warned, did not stop. Which gets us which gets to us... <laughs> the most viral point of the day. So yeah. anyway, Elizabeth Warren is basically told to stop talking by a, a party line Senate vote. And this suddenly blows up. She leaves the Senate and goes right to MSNBC. She's all over the internet. She goes and reads the letter on a Facebook Live video that's gotten like 10 million views at this point. But Mitch McConnell really helped her out unwittingly by saying this when he was explaining why the Republicans had voted to say that she was in violation of this rule. She was warned. She was given an explanation. Nevertheless, she persisted. Now printed on T-shirts. Yes. (laughs) Nevertheless. When's the last time you used nevertheless? 
Well, it's very lots, senatorial. Lots of people used it in hashtags as soon as that <laughs> happened. It became like the new nasty woman right away. I saw, nevertheless, she persisted with pictures of like Rosa Parks and Harriet uh, Tubman and all these other feminist icons. Uh, Hillary Clinton even tweeted this. Indeed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, You're usually our go-to person for Hillary Clinton thoughts. <laughs> um, yeah, this I mean, is her fight song. Oh, don't okay, know. Sorry. It's stuck in my head all day. Okay. Um yeah, I mean, this became a fundraising juggernaut for Democrats. This became just sort of the latest cause. And it further elevates Elizabeth Warren as the, you know, hero of the left that and sort of cements her above Bernie Sanders in this non-existent or possibly existent rivalry to be the voice of the progressive left. It also so backfired on Mitch McConnell because yeah. everybody got to read that Coretta Scott King letter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it when if she were just talking about it on the Senate floor, it really wouldn't have been as viral, clearly. I'll also say this, you know, it's really funny to me that they bring up Rule 19 to say that Elizabeth Warren was so out of line. Rule 19 was not put in place because people talk to each other in a really mean way. It was put in place in 1902 because two friends who were senators literally got into a fist fight. And they were basically trash talking each other when the other one wasn't on the floor. The guy comes back and they get into a fist fight and this whole melee break breaks out. What happened to fist fights on the floor? 50 years before that, somebody got caned in the Senate. But Wait, what? So that's not exactly happening now. Charles Sumner, who got caned wow. uh, by Preston Brooks. Yes, this is going back a ways. But the yeah. 19th century was wild in the Senate. Wild. <laughs> so, so just to round up this confirmation conversation, uh, you know, Democrats have been making these high profile fights and losing and making another high profile fight and losing. And that's something that Elizabeth Warren acknowledged during one of the interviews she did yesterday. She was talking to uh, to Yahoo News and uh, Katie Couric basically asked, do you feel do you feel kind of powerless in this situation? And she gave a pretty blunt answer about how Democrats fare right now. We have a lot less tools, and we're going to lose a lot of the time. I get that. We don't have the votes. We don't have the votes. So pushing all those confirmation issues aside and on to the next much bigger confirmation facing the Senate, Neil Gorsuch's confirmation, Uh, some interesting developments over the last couple days when it comes to Neil Gorsuch and the president who nominated him, Donald Trump, and how Donald Trump views Gorsuch's fellow federal judges. Who can catch us up on this? So Supreme Court nominees do this thing where they basically go door to door and talk to senators behind closed doors. They have conversations. In some of these conversations, it turns out that senators have pressed Neil Gorsuch on the comments that Donald Trump has made about the judiciary branch, uh, the tweets, the so-called judge, uh, and and various other criticisms of the judges that have been hearing complaints about his uh, executive orders. Mm-hmm. And apparently, behind closed doors, and we've had this, we've confirmed this in multiple different ways, Gorsuch said to Senator Blumenthal, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, who's a Democrat, said that these sorts of remarks are demoralizing. Mm-hmm. So uh, that came out shortly after the meeting with Blumenthal. Donald Trump tweeted this morning questioning this, even though uh, aides to Gorsuch helping with this confirmation have confirmed it. So here's Trump's tweet. Senator Richard Blumenthal, who has never fought in Vietnam when he said for years that he had, parentheses, major lie, now misrepresents what Judge Gorsuch told him, question mark. Again, this was confirmed to multiple news outlets, including NPR and Senator- including to me. (laughs) 
And Republican Senator Ben Sass uh, told MSNBC today that Gorsuch said something very similar when he met with him. I asked him about the so-called judges comment because we don't have so-called judges or so-called presidents or so-called senators. And uh, this is a guy who uh, kind of welled up with some energy and he said any attack on any of, I think his term to me was brothers or sisters of the robe is an attack on all judges. And he believes in an independent judiciary. And I think what I saw in that guy as he got some energy about it was this isn't about somebody who's just been nominated to the Supreme Court. This is a guy, if he were on traffic court in Colorado uh, or in Nebraska, would have the same view. He understands why we have three branches. And frankly, uh, it seems to me that that's a good reason why his nomination shouldn't be politicized. People all across all right, the political I want to float one theory by you guys, because yeah. uh, we, we've seen some chatter about this, that, that this could all be a ruse by the Republicans in the White House and that this is kind of a moment for Gorsuch to give himself some distance with the White House and give Democrats a reason to support him. What do you make of this theory? I don't think it's a ruse. I think the fact is that he couldn't be confirmed or would have a difficult time being confirmed like the rest of uh, Donald Trump's cabinet members who distanced themselves from very controversial things that Donald Trump said. Mm -hmm. Uh, We saw Rex Tillerson, for example, the Secretary of State now in his confirmation hearing, say that he thought definitively that Russia was behind the hacks into Democratic emails during the campaign when Donald Trump was continuously saying, well, I don't know, maybe it's China. Um, You've seen that with Jeff Sessions and other people who have come out against things that Donald Trump has said, because frankly, if Donald Trump were in front of the panel of senators and said the things that he said during the campaign uh, as loosely as he said them or one of his picks said those things, they could not be confirmed to those cabinet positions. Yeah. Um, we have learned that Judge Gorsuch told Senator Blumenthal, sure, go out, say what I said publicly. Hmm. Um, it's actually pretty uncommon for a senator to walk out of the meeting and sort of blabber on about exactly what the judge told them behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. And already this has turned into a Republican talking point. You heard it in Ben Sass's comments on MSNBC. Um, I've seen other Republican senators saying, look, this just proves that he has judicial independence. Now, Democrats are saying, all right, If he's willing to say this behind closed doors, he needs to say it in public. And if he doesn't say it in public, then we don't really believe he has independence. Well, lucky for everybody, he'll be appearing at a forum in public in a little bit when he goes in front of the Judiciary Committee for his confirmation hearing. Yeah. And uh, also, President Trump this afternoon again brought up the Vietnam thing. Domenico, uh, just to clear this up, uh, in Trump's tweet, he was referencing Blumenthal in Vietnam. Could you catch us up to speed on that? You know, basically, this came back to the fact that uh, when Blumenthal was running for the Senate in 2010, uh, it was discovered that he had falsely said that he had served in Vietnam. Blumenthal received deferments from going to Vietnam. He served in the Marine Reserves, but he didn't serve overseas. Uh, He later apologized. He won election, said that he meant to say that he served during Vietnam, not that he served in Vietnam. During. During. Mm -hmm. But that is a big difference, we should point out, to what Donald Trump did during Vietnam because he got deferment for injuries. My last question on all of this is, does Donald Trump have like 
a file on every lawmaker and like what the most embarrassing thing in their past <laughs> is? Or does he just like Google it when somebody else criticizes him and like figure out what he's going to find and then like say about it's a them good, on Twitter? It's a good question, but he has no doubt shown the willingness to go for whatever the below the belt smack is on yeah. whatever person it is. Yeah. I'll just say that this morning I was Googling before the Trump tweets and searched for Senator Blumenthal. And one of the first articles that came up was a Washington Free Beacon article that said, man who misrepresented his service in Vietnam is saying he wants extreme vetting of Judge Gorsuch. If it came up first for me, it might have come up first for the president. One other big story happening today is some questionable comments made by both President Trump and Kellyanne Conway, one of his top advisors, directly relating to Ivanka Trump's business and uh, Kellyanne Conway basically steering people to Ivanka Trump's buying her clothes. Uh, we're going to get into that in tomorrow's show. Uh, one other topic to get into today. This is about the raid on al-Qaeda in Yemen last week that resulted in the death of one American Navy SEAL. William Ryan Owens, as well as civilian casualties, including children. As more information comes out about this, it's becoming clear that a lot of things went wrong in this mission. That's led to some tough questions about what happened and how tactical decisions were made from lawmakers like Republican Senator John McCain. When you lose a $75 million airplane, and more importantly, American lives are lo life is lost and wounded, I don't believe that you can call it a success. And some pushback from the White House. Here's Press Secretary Sean Spicer. I think anybody who get, who undermines the success of that rage owes an apology and a disservice to the life of Chief Owens. I, I, hold on, Kristen, can I answer the question? I'm answering the question. Please let me finish. The raid, the, the action that was taken in Yemen was a huge success. American lives will be saved because of it. Future attacks will be prevented. The life of Chief Ryan Owens was done in service to this country, and we owe him and his family a great debt for the information that we received during that raid. I think any suggestion otherwise is a disservice to his courageous life and the actions that he just took. Full stop. What are the big warning signs that have emerged as to what went wrong in this raid? Reporting by our colleagues Tom Bowman and Alice Fordham make it clear that a lot went wrong. Mm -hmm. Like possibly everything went wrong, mm -hmm. that the American forces uh, were supposed to sneak in in the dark of night. And by the time they were there, they knew they were coming. Yeah, and they walked into a firefight. The, inadvertently uh, or not. Exactly. The Osprey that came to uh, rescue them uh, had a hard landing and uh, had to be destroyed, a multi-million dollar Osprey that had to be destroyed. And then there are the civilian casualties, which... Uh, are not insignificant. And of course, the death of a Navy SEAL. And that started this sort of food fight back and forth with John McCain, the senator from Arizona and a former prisoner of war who called the mission clearly a failure. Now, Tamara, uh, right after Sean Spicer's very first briefing, when the whole thing about the size of the inauguration crowd went down, we were talking about that. And you said that credibility from the press secretary matters because the press secretary is someone who gives information about, you know, covert military raids and things like that. This is that exact situation. How is he responding to these details that are coming out uh, in all these reports? He's basically ignoring the troubling details and saying that if you uh, say that this wasn't a success, then you're saying that the Navy SEAL who was killed in this operation died for nothing, uh, which is a very absolutist position to take. 
this was, as far as we know, President Trump's first real life or death commander in chief type decision. Mm-hmm. It's the first one that we we know about publicly. And and the results were mixed. We also know that the White House says that they got key intelligence out of the mission. We don't know for sure what the intelligence is. And you've also heard Sean Spicer take this, as you said, Tam, an absolutist position where he said that Ryan Owen's death, anybody who says that this mission wasn't a success, owes him an apology and it's a disservice to his service. What happens next with this? Well, uh, a bipartisan group of senators are asking for a classified briefing from the Trump administration on this. Uh, Senator McCain said that he has already been briefed. He's the head of the Armed Services Committee, so that would make sense. And we will see if this becomes something more. As Tam mentioned, our colleagues, Alice Fordham and uh, Tom Bowman, they also reported that this event is under investigation by the Pentagon. So at least internally, we'll see what comes out. Now, there's obviously going to be a lot of classified information. I would expect that some months from now, maybe we'll see some kind of redacted report. And uh, Scott will be bugging you for the uh, information of whatever comes out on the Hill. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that the fact that this mission went badly doesn't necessarily mean that there was a fatal planning flaw or that the SEALs were unprepared. I mean, it's a war, it's a firefight, and things are never going to go according to plan. Yeah. Okay, that is all the time that we have for today. Once again, our regular weekly roundup will be in your feed Saturday morning because we are taping it live at the Warner Theater in downtown D.C. on Friday night, and we are very excited to see you there. Don't forget to support the podcast by supporting your local public radio station. You can go to npr.org stations to find yours, donate, and tell them we sent you. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Mm-hmm.